My name is John Lorden, and I've been looking into hundreds of unsolved mysteries over the past five years on my YouTube channel, Lorden Arts. And I've been known to bring a respectful, victim-focused approach to the stories that I cover while donating thousands of dollars directly to those cases and the charities that help them. Now, I'm bringing that approach and sensibility, along with some of the biggest mysteries I've ever looked into, and some new ones, to a weekly podcast called Seriously Mysterious. From bizarre occurrences, to unsolved murders, and unexplainable disappearances, everything is fair game on this show as long as it's seriously mysterious. You can find Seriously Mysterious on your favorite podcatchers or by visiting seriouslymysterious.com. Let's look into the mysterious together. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder in My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, for the second time in a row, we'll be covering another case out of Lake City, Florida, in which a man was gunned down in front of witnesses. And to this point, there have been no arrest. His murder may be connected to the last one we talked about, and may be part of something bigger going on in the central Florida town. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or on Facebook at facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support The Murder of My Family and get VIP access to things like ad-free listening, early preview episodes, and bonus content of not only this show, but for every other podcast on the Abject Network of Indie Podcast, consider subscribing to the show with an Abject Insider subscription through Apple Podcast. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting the show in the process. Your support is greatly appreciated. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. 
Lake City, Florida is located in Columbia County, directly between Tallahassee and Jacksonville. With a population of just over 12,000 people, the website niche.com describes Lake City as offering residents a sparse, suburban feel, and most residents rent their homes. In Lake City, there are a lot of parks. Many families and retirees live in Lake City, and residents tend to have moderate political views. The public schools in Lake City are above average. If you search for photos of Lake City, you'll find images of a main street in the center of town that give you a quaint, small-town feeling, along with some of the most beautiful blue water springs you'll ever lay eyes on. But despite its beauty and small-town feel, Lake City's crime rate is alarmingly high. The website bestplaces.net reports the crime rate in Lake City, Florida is significantly higher than the national average. According to data, the violent crime rate in Lake City is 72.7, while the national average is only 22.7. Additionally, property crimes are also alarmingly high, with a rate of 95.2 compared to the U.S. average of 35.4. This indicates that safety and security should be a priority for anyone living in or visiting Lake City, as people must take extra precautions for their safety and security in order to avoid becoming victims of crime. While Lake City is pretty diverse and almost equally made up of both white and black citizens, murders seem to be hitting the African-American community especially hard. In particular, murders of African-American men. In the last episode of The Murder of My Family, I covered the case of Kendrick Jerry, who was gunned down in public outside a Lake City store, and his shooter initially wasn't even charged. It wasn't until the victim's family and other forces put pressure on the leadership there that Kendrick's killer was finally charged with manslaughter. But during the years leading up to Kendrick's death, there were other murders of African-American men. One of those was in 2018 with the murder of Curtis Nathaniel Coker Simmons. And like Kendrick, Curtis was also shot to death, but his killer has never been identified. But Curtis's sister, Be Faithful, has a theory that the murders may be connected to each other, and that certain people in particular with power and connections may be to blame, and that there may be corruption in Lake City. I should point out that with the exception of Kendrick Jerry's shooter, nobody else mentioned in this episode has been charged with any of these crimes or convicted, and they're presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It had been Friday, June 15, 2018, for only 20 minutes, when officers with the Lake City Police Department received a call reporting shots fired. Near the intersection of Northeast Trinity Street and Northeast Catawba Avenue in Lake City, 47-year-old Curtis Nathaniel Coker Simmons was found lying face down. He had been shot. Officers called EMS to the scene, but Curtis was too badly wounded, and he was ultimately pronounced dead at the scene without being rushed to the hospital. Curtis was one of 28 siblings. Growing up, he was described as very athletic, and had a style all his own. As an adult, he got into trouble with the law and went to prison on drug-related charges. But according to his sister Be Faithful, after prison, he realized that drugs only hurt his community and the families there, so he decided to try and turn his life around. He became a confidential informant to the police, hoping he could help them curb the crime there, and that maybe he could make a difference. Now, he was lying dead on the street. There were multiple people who may have witnessed the shooting, but interviews with them resulted in no useful information. Police had no suspect description, no motive, and not a lot of evidence. I mentioned Kendrick Jerry's shooting death already, and covered it in the last episode, and his family felt that his case wasn't properly handled due to corruption in the area and within the Lake City Police Department. This is a feeling shared by the family of Curtis Coker. His sister, Be Faithful, has been relentlessly trying to get justice for her brother, but her efforts are making people very unhappy. The more Be Faithful digs, the more pressure she puts on the powers that be in Lake City, the more threatened she feels. Reportedly, 
One woman has been doing live streams in which he threatens to be faithful. And despite these threats being forwarded to the police, there's been no action taken against the woman. She and others associated with her are said to tease the Coker family, telling them that the case will never be solved because law enforcement is helping to cover it up. This has discouraged anyone in the area with information from coming forward, cooperating with the investigation. Complicating things, it appears this woman threatening Curtis's sister might be friends with Kendrick Jerry's fiance, who his family believes has not been forthcoming about her possible involvement in the events surrounding his death. She may also be related to Michael Andrew Smith, Kendrick's killer, and his fiance's abusive ex-boyfriend. Though five years separate the murders of Kendrick Jerry and Curtis Coker, it's hard to overlook this possible connection as just a coincidence. Be Faithful alleges that at the center of it all is a powerful and connected man with a criminal history named Sylvester Warren. He has ties to both Curtis's case and Kendrick Jerry. There's no official word from authorities that these cases are linked, but if what these two victims' families are saying about small-town corruption is true, then at the very least, not much investigation was done. At the worst, the cases are being actively prevented from being linked and solved by someone on the inside. Sylvester Warren has a very long criminal history. Most recently, a fight broke out at a high school basketball game, and when an officer tried to break it up, Warren allegedly attempted to grab his firearm. The incident was captured on video. That case from December 2022 still hasn't gone to trial. Once again, I'd like to point out that Sylvester Warren hasn't been charged in connection with any of the deaths I've discussed and is considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Curtis Coker Simmons had three children and one grandchild at the time of his death. He left behind many siblings, including his sister, Be Faithful, who refuses to let fear stop her from fighting for her brother. If you have any information about the murder of Curtis Coker Simmons, you're encouraged to contact the Lake City Police Department. And if you prefer to remain anonymous and give your tip, you can call the Columbia County Crime Stoppers at 386-754-7099 or go to columbiacrimestoppers.net to submit your tip online. There's a reward being offered of $1,000, and if you're interested in collecting it, you have to call Crime Stoppers and report the tip. Only information given directly to Crime Stoppers will make you eligible for the reward. Connections between Curtis Coker Simmons and Kendrick Jerry and the details of what's going on in Lake City and who may be involved is a long and twisting story, one that I spoke to Curtis's sister if you faithful about. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Welcome to Faithful to the show, and thank you for coming on to discuss your brother Curtis's case with us. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm happy to have you here, and I know this has been a, a very big challenge about you know the entirety of your brother's case and what happened and, and trying to get justice for him. And we're going to get into the details of what happened to Curtis. But before we do that, can you talk a little bit about your brother himself and, and let listeners know a little bit about him? I can. Um, so... Um, Curtis is, well, I am one of 28 children, and Curtis is number uh, 18, I'm sorry, 16, and so I'm number 18, and we have the same father, but we don't have the same mother, and part of our childhood, we grew up in the house, um, in the same house, Um Curtis was 
um, in my mind, you know, because we're in the same age bracket, so there was Curtis, Trellis, uh, myself, and then Casina Vimon. We're all within one year of each other, although we don't all have the same mothers. My father, you know, he still raised all of us knowing that we were all siblings. And uh, uh, Curtis is the athletic one of all 28 children. He loved athletics. Um, he was really into um, calisthenics. He, he did a lot of, um, you know, bodybuilding. He was very muscular. Um, and, you know, of all 28 of us, he is the one that was most like my father. Uh, because my father was was into that. Curtis just had his own style. He was a comedian. He just he made everybody laugh. Um, he loved Lake City. I left Lake City in 1989 and I wouldn't get back until 2009. But Curtis loved Lake City. He loved the people here. He, you know, I, I used to tell him all the time he was like a big kid. He really never grew up uh, in between, you know, his indiscretions. He just was always a big kid. And um, he loved style. He had his own style. Imaginably, with that number of children, you know, at one point, there were 16 of us in the house. And so, you know, my parents had their own way of, you know, doing things and we didn't know what our income was and we would never know it. And neither would anyone else based on Curtis because Curtis created his own style for everything. <laughs> Where kids were getting hand-me-down clothes, Curtis would take the hand-me-downs and he cut off the ends of the jeans and turn them into shorts. And he was just known for having these creases in his, in his pants, uh, you know, in his shorts. And so, I think he he may have created the style of shorts below the knee because that's what he did when they were not long enough to be pants and, uh, you know, too short to be shorts. So um, he was very athletic, uh, just humorous. He was very giving. He gave a lot. Um, he gave a lot. And so, you know, as a child, that's my memory of him. As an adult, my memory of Curtis is that um, he reminded me that it was okay to be me. Um, I've always been a black sheep and Curtis reinforced that that black sheep was needed for the world. And anytime I felt bad about, you know, whatever, he just keeps saying, everybody can't be you, be faithful. You're be faithful. You're the only be faithful. And, you know, he just motivated me to be me. Sounds like it was a, he was a real positive uh, force for you. He was. So absolutely he was uh, uh, going into um, he, he died in 2018. 
what was going on in his life around that time leading up to when this tragedy happened? What was uh, his life like? So um, Curtis had gone to prison twice for uh, crimes involving drug trafficking prior to me returning to Lake City in 2009. And um, I've never been to that life and I just call it the underworld life and so it's never been appealing to me and I didn't harp I mean I didn't bash my brother about his life it just had nothing absolutely nothing to do with me and he didn't share that life with me and um, so I believed that he was trying to make it right Curtis and I don't share the same mother his mother lives in Lake City, and um, he had uh, four children, two of which I spent a significant amount of time with the girls. And um, so I saw him designed to be a father. I mean, I'm, I, I love my kids. And, um, you know, I, I shared their achievements and things with Curtis. And I'd like to believe that um, he watched his nieces and nephews and maybe that inspired him to some degree. So um, what I've learned after Curtis's death was that Curtis decided that Drugs serve no benefit in our community. And so I've heard, I've learned that he, he became an informant to law enforcement, all different branches of law enforcement in every aspect of uh, that world. He shared information with those agencies about what was happening. And um, So leading up to that, his death, there was some pending criminal cases going on that I've learned he was a key witness in those cases. Um, so do you think I don't that, know how much uh, yeah, I was going to say, do you think that played a role because his case is um is is it technically unsolved or you think that it's just not enough to prosecute what's the status of the no case? it is technically unsolved they have no suspects um there is uh, gossip discussion on the streets about who's responsible after curtis's death for the last five years, I did my own investigating. I met regularly the first year with law enforcement and um, then the communications became irregular um, to once or twice a year. And the more I learned, the more I realized how huge it was. And then, um, 
there's a pattern of these murders that are unsolved in an escalating format. Um, and there's a connection between the people who have been murdered in Columbia County that's also concerning. So as it, the pattern of these murders became obvious to me, I shared it with federal agencies. I shared it with our governor. I keep sharing it with anyone who would listen. Um, and so I believe that these murders that have occurred since 2015 are part of a pattern of, um, of organized crime to remove people who were not um, viewed as being uh, part of the organized crime. And so I just, you know, I've, I've watched that pattern of, of people who didn't desire to be part of that world anymore. However, they still had local influence and they've been removed. Their murders are unsolved. Um, we had a murder in 2023 that was quickly determined to be an act of self-defense. However, you know, it, it took some pressing from the community and um, it took some very vocal family members and citizens to, to push for a grand jury's um, indictment on charges there. So I, I think, I think we're turning a different corner, but we've had five murders since 2015 that are unsolved murders and they all share some common characteristics. So, um, I don't believe it's isolated. I believe it's part of, it's part of a, a, strategic removal or termination of people. And I've actually met with an individual that I believe is key in all of this, who um, candidly told me that that is exactly what it was. And he offered um, information about my brother's murder in exchange for me um, helping to secure him a plea deal with federal agencies, which I declined. Um, I, I declined. And my brother's life isn't anything I'm going to negotiate um, with the, ju the justice for. So if federal agents get involved in a plea, it won't be because I walk to them offering that to them. It's just not what I'm going to do. So I believe that this has been part of Curtis was murdered as part of a, a strategy to remove obstacles in a organized crime ring that um, that so didn't pan out. So it sounds like your brother was, you know, had been in some trouble, but was trying to get past that and change his life. And I think you were referring that 2023 murder you mentioned was Kendrick Jerry. He same thing. He had gone through some hard times, but was turning his life around when he was killed. And I know there's some puzzle pieces between uh, your brother's case and and Kendrick's case. 
Can you explain how they fit together and what the connections are between their cases? So a very key player in all of these um, in all of these incidents is a man named Sylvester Warren III. And so in 2006, uh, Sylvester Warren III shot a man in Lake City. His name was Bernard Lucas. And he shot Bernard Lucas at a store filmed on camera. And he was arrested for it. And um, then in 2007, Sylvester Warren III was busted in a federal drug trafficking investigation involving about $30 million, the federal uh, agency, uh, DEA estimated, and about 20 defendants, among which were his father, um, other relatives, uh, five or six of his brothers, and they were all convicted in federal court. Well, in 2014, Sylvester Warren gets out of federal prison. Um, he gets out and within a year before and after, all of the people um, involved in that drug ring, they get out of prison. And so in 2015, our um, murders, unsolved murders began. Um, very, very briefly upon Warren's release from prison, I have a small business consulting practice. And so very briefly, he was my client. I had no recollection of him from childhood, none whatsoever. The people who brought him to me simply brought him to me saying, hey, you know, he's a good guy and he wants to start some businesses. And so it took probably all of two months to realize something was not, something was off with Sylvester Warren. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but something was off. And I don't typically shun a client, um, but I shun this client. It just, there was a lot of race narrative and I just couldn't. Something was just off. I don't know any other way to explain it. Um, Sylvester had a, you know, not only a pro-black message, but he had a, a greed, a hate, just a lot of things all uh, embodied into one. And in 2017, you know, I do a lot of work within the community. And so a lot of people from the community started reaching out to me, telling me that I really needed to pay attention to this man. Um, I needed to pay attention to the things that he was um, advocating for. Um, I honestly, as my client, I did no background checking on him. He was just someone that people brought to me. Well, when the community started telling me to take a look at him, I then took a look at him and discovered his background. The prison, the drugs, the, the shooting, um, not being prosecuted. Um, I noticed very early on, you know, I used to go and 
uh, for probably about two or three years, I would go to Crystal's every morning and I'd sit in the exact same location. And um, it, it, I did it so frequently that the restaurant called that my office and they let no one sit there. And so for about a year, Sylvester Warren would come into the restaurant and he would have meetings with different judges and different um, business leaders. And he always made it a point to force them to come sit within earshot of me so that I could hear their discussion. And while I wasn't impressed at all, I used to find it very interesting with the different people that he would meet with. Um, currently seated judges and you know just it was always interesting to me who would come and meet with him and it was during that period of time that I learned about his background um I simply decided that I would stay clear steer clear of Warren he wasn't anything I wanted to he didn't fit my message and my beliefs and so you know it was what it was in May of 2018, I started receiving an anonymous phone call and text messages from um, informing me that I need to check on Juneteenth. And, um, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, Black history programming um, in Lake City. And so I couldn't make out what the intended message was. You know, I would, I would, every time I'd get a call or a message, I would go check and see, you know, is something going on nationwide about Juneteenth? Why are these people telling me to check on Juneteenth? Look at Juneteenth. And um, so I coincidentally happened to be at a meeting in either May or uh, I believe it was May, in May, maybe early June, where Sylvester Warren was um he was speaking to the lake city council about their uh co-hosting a juneteenth celebration which would have been the first juneteenth celebration in lake city and i recall sitting there and watching him read something off of his phone that juneteenth seemed to be very irrelevant to anybody unless you lived in texas um i listened to him you know, I listened to the people who came up to speak in support of it, and I was just baffled that, um, you know, anyone thought that was relevant for Lake City, Florida. Nonetheless, the city council denied um, involvement, and so it would be within two days of that meeting, I received another phone call, um, and the caller told me, that I really needed to pay attention to Juneteenth. And at that point, I think I'd received about five phone calls, maybe four or five messages. And so I just, I didn't know what it meant. I called around, I'm asking people what's going on with Juneteenth. And um, at the time I had a performing arts gallery that was downtown and um, I, I, it was a, a newly acquired uh, building for me. So many nights I was there at one or two o'clock in the morning, painting murals on the wall, uh, getting things ready to, to, to open. And so on 
the morning that Curtis was killed, uh, we had a scheduled field trip. We were holding a camp, a youth camp, and we had about 20 kids in the camp. And so we had a field trip scheduled that morning. Uh, we were supposed to leave at 8 o'clock. And at 6 o'clock that morning, I received a phone call from Ben Skipper. And he's a friend of mine. And he told me that my brother had been killed that morning. And I told Ben there was no way Curtis could have been killed. One, my performing arts gallery was two blocks from where he told me Curtis was killed. That was number one. And number two, you know, everyone in town knew that Curtis was my brother, although we were half siblings, but they all knew it. So I told Ben he was making a mistake because they would have called me first. They all knew that I was there at the, the, the performing arts center. They knew that. I mean, law enforcement passed me all night long. Um, there is no way that my brother could have been killed some hours before then. And they hadn't called. So that I told him he probably, you know, there was this other guy in town named Curtis Simmons, and maybe that's who he was talking about. And he told me, nope, that it was my brother. So... Um, Curtis was killed in a section of town called Bedrock. And Bedrock is off of Martin Luther King Jr. It's in a minority neighborhood. It's behind a church. And it was absolutely out of character because my brother didn't, he didn't even go out at night. And so I kept imagining, you know, why would Curtis have been, why would he have been down in Bedrock? because he didn't even go out at night. And so, of course, um, I played back some conversations I'd had in the last month. And I immediately, the first phone call I made was to our sheriff. And I, um, I told him something didn't feel right, that my brother would not have been out at night and I immediately shared a theory with him that he did not disagree with. So for the next six months, I walked the streets every night talking to people. It took probably four days for a story to be aired and then the story was inaccurate. I remember when the newspaper contacted me. Well, actually, I contacted them, left a message for Robert Bridges, who was the editor at the time. And Robert called me back. And I remember Robert saying, B, do you know that, you know, the streets say that your brother was an informant? Do you know that your brother went to prison? And I remember saying, I didn't know he was an informant, but I knew, of course I knew he had gone to prison twice. And I remember that the story that they ran was my word saying my brother had gone to prison.
twice. And I thought it was just such an odd thing to say, you know, as if that was supposed to have some impact on the way his life or his death was viewed. And I took up for the reporter. I took up for the news editors. I called him immediately as the community bashed him or bashed me for making that statement. And I called them and I said, I'm, you know, I'm not sure why that was captured, but I am so sorry they're saying such horrible things about you. And so I discussed my brother's murder over the next six months with that editor as if he was trustworthy. And it would be a couple of years before I realized that there was really no intent of solving a murder that they already, that the community already believed they knew who committed it. Well, coincidentally, my brother was murdered in 2018. I walked the streets for the remainder of 2018. In 2019, I knew enough about what happened in theory that I knew we had a problem bigger than just my brother's murder. Um, and so I threw my name in the hat for a elected position, uh, which would have some impact over the police department and the way they um, were organized and investigated and handled crime. Um, I met with them frequently during that period of time. I shared with them what the community was saying. Uh, there were so many discrepancies. Um, yes, my brother was an informant. I didn't understand why his handler with the police department was also the first person to respond to the murder the call that night and was also the person that was handling the murder investigation. But the community didn't have a good rapport with this person. There was just so many questions that made absolutely no sense to me. And so I, you know, I reached out to our state agencies, our federal agencies. I took everybody information. You know, I met federal agents who knew my brother, you know, spoke about his willingness to be helpful with them. And, you know, they assured me that they were constantly looking out for him. But it was in that pursuit of political um, aspirations that people such as Sylvester Warren would say things about my brother's murder, such as in 2021, I threw a, a youth leadership event that involved the DEA, the sheriff's office, the police department, and uh, we recognized about 150 students from the community. And Sylvester Warren's reaction to that was to publicly post that I was an idiot that the very people that I was praising were the people behind my brother's murder. And I reached out to law enforcement saying, do you see these things that he is, he is posting on social media? And they'd all tell me, you know, just ignore it. 
You know, he says all kinds of things and he did. He said all kinds of things. But this just seemed to be very, very defamatory. If it's not true, it's very defamatory. And I knew the pushback I was receiving in the community. And, you know, people want to tell you part of the story. They don't want to tell you all the story. And, you know, it's not like my brother was killed uh, without there being witnesses. He was killed surrounded by six people. Um, I watched the video of the person pull up into a vehicle, park on a street, walk over to my brother and shoot him. I watched the video of this occurring and yet all of the people standing there as my brother was shot, none of them were called in. Law enforcement wanted me to believe that those people had to volunteer to come in and speak. And I'm not saying that they should have been brought in as suspects. I have never understood why there was not questioning. And when I attempted to explain to them that these people tell me that they don't trust law enforcement, that although I don't believe what Sylvester Warren says about law enforcement's involvement, I, I can't overlook that my brother laid on the ground for 11 hours. I was five minutes away. No one called me. I, I, I can't understand things that happen. Um, the state's attorney at the time, Jeff Sigmeister, I met with him three or four times. I shared with him my concern. I didn't have a lot of confidence in our local law enforcement. And he shared with me some things about my brother's murder and about the person I suspected was involved in organizing the hit on my brother. And the reason being that this person whom I do believe to be Sylvester Warren, he had a strategic plan that he wanted to take control over the East Corridor and to do so required all of the influence be removed. And I shared with the state's attorney at that time that these people are dying and why aren't we looking at this pattern and the state's attorney made a commitment to me. And within a year, that man would be on trial himself for a bribery. And it would take another year before the FBI interview is released. And whose name is sitting there in the middle of it? Sylvester Warren. And the assistant district attorney, assistant state's attorney that that's state attorney had a sign, um, John Durrett would be front and center. It, 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 there would be so many connections to all of these players being involved that it would become overwhelming. And in 2023, what I can tell you is that we've uncovered a ring of organized crime, including murder, um, human trafficking, money laundering, gambling, interference with um, elections, fraud, all of these things. And all, all of the players are the same.
in all these situations. And in that meeting that I had with Sylvester Warren, at his request, after he publicly announced and publicly at city council meetings, government meetings, that he was going to provide me with information that could take down the entire council, could take down government structures, that he was the key to all of the puzzles that I had about what was happening in Lake City, in Columbia County. And I met with him and he told me that the fathers of the sons whom I was inquiring about and discussing about their involvement with crime, that those fathers were the ones behind my brother's murder and that if I didn't stop asking questions, I would join my brother. And so when people like Sylvester Warren and his cousin, Fran Smith, continued to post that, that my brother was an informant, that he told on people and those people were tired of him telling. You can't ignore that that is, there is a lot of evidence that says some of what they're saying is true. The man says a lot of things that are just blatantly defamatory. But in the midst of the defamatory statements, there is truth. So it, it sounds like a very organized and long stretching connection that's going on in, in Lake City involving some of the same people. That's correct. That's correct. And um, you you think Kendrick Jerry's murder is tied to all of this and tied to your brother's case uh, through through the same through the same thing? thing? I do. Uh, Kendrick Jerry. I went to school with Kendrick. He was a you know great younger than me. And as adults, we didn't interact. Um, I wouldn't get involved with Kendrick's murder until of course he was deceased and there was a lot of discussion in the community about this being an act of self-defense on the part of um michael smith um the perpetrator for the last two years the two years prior to kendrick's murder there was a lot of discussion about these covid cares act funds that were uh, being awarded to uh, illegitimate businesses, illegitimate individuals. And again, at the heart of it was Sylvester Warren. Um, it was Sylvester Warren and it was a woman named Erin Faith Murphy. Now at the time, Erin wasn't dating Kendrick when I learned of her identity. Um, she was dating uh, Michael Andrew Smith. But after Kendrick's death, did I learn that uh, Aaron stopped dating 
um, Michael Smith. And in fact, he introduced Aaron to Kendrick to for Kendrick to assist for her to assist Kendrick rather with um, obtaining some financing for some companies he was interested in starting. Aaron had coined a reputation within the community as being the dope dealer's banker. And Aaron was the president of a bank called Renaissance Bank. And, you know, again, I would not know it until after Kendrick's murder. But typically, you know, a banker is required to have some some education. You know, we learned that Aaron didn't have a associate's degree. She didn't have a bachelor's degree. And she didn't have extensive experience aside from being a teller in her high school years. But more importantly, we learned that Aaron was in this circle with Sylvester Warren. And in 2006, after he shot Bernard Lucas, Aaron Murphy had sent a letter to the court's asking that Sylvester not be prosecuted for the shooting of Bernard Lucas. So that letter would be used to help him avoid prosecution of the shooting, but it would also be used when he got back from federal prison and he was put on probation. It would be used to help um, him obtain early termination from his probation. So, um, what we've since learned was that not only was this scheme or this strategy to control the East Corridor, but it was to provide some businesses. Sylvester Warren has worked one legitimate job in his entire life. And that is in 2006, while he was at uh, Dozier, I'm sorry, in 1996, while he was at Dozier School for Boys, he worked at Wendy's for three months. That's his legitimate job. He got out of Dozier and he commenced to, according to the federal investigation, from 1997 until he was busted in 2007, he and his family were involved in drug trafficking. 30 one million dollars worth of crack cocaine. That's what he was involved in. That's his work. However, he owns over a hundred properties and he has about 23 businesses from um, daycares, uh, um, financing companies, bail bonds company, property management, um, uh, mortgaging, financing. And this isn't with ordinary criminals. These are businesses with known lawyers as partners, not registered agents, as partners. As I stated to you, these meetings he was having, those meetings were with judges, known judges. And coincidentally, these known officials were all part of this federal investigation in 2022 that led to our third state's attorney being removed from office. We've had two previous state's attorneys removed from office. And so, you know, we, a group of citizens, 
dedicated themselves to mapping out what the connection is with all of these people. And this is a, it is a large strategy, a large, um, large in that it covers our entire town. Um, when, when Kendrick Jerry was shot at the store, the first reports to the media identified that Smith had been apprehended. He had been apprehended. And the second reports removed that and made no mention of him being apprehended. As a matter of fact, we reached out to the jail to find out if he had been apprehended, where was his booking uh, photo? Where was the booking information? And that's how we learned that he in fact had been released. He wasn't booked. We also learned that he was allowed to make a phone call from the scene and that phone call was made to Sylvester Warren who appeared at the scene and Sylvester Warren contacted our state's attorney. He would later make videos about him reaching out to the state's attorney and the state's attorney coming to his home and they're discussing criminal cases. As a result of that call or at the conclusion of that call, Michael Smith was released and he wouldn't get a booking photo not resulting from, from him shooting Kendrick Jerry. And despite the family producing dozens of text messages and voice recordings of Michael Smith indicating that um, he desired to kill Kendrick Jerry and witness testimony, it would take numerous communications to both our governor and um, the attorney general to even get a grand jury to be convened. And grand jury convenes are private. They're not open to the public. So we don't know what was presented to the grand jury. We just know that the resulting effect of it was that he was indicted on a charge of manslaughter. I stay in contact with the family. So I know that um, the family continues to be told by the third circuit that um, they don't believe that the evidence um, of the prior threats is relevant in this case because they weren't acted on within a certain amount of time. They can't provide any case law that, that, that defines what that amount of time is, but their position is uh, the manslaughter charge seems to be appropriate given the evidence. And it was um, when I <clears throat> I talked to Kendrick's family, I was a little bit shocked by how they sort of dismissed the shooting and you know must let him walk free. Um, and and only later were they charged. You know, it's almost like they so there was pressure on them to to do something. Absolutely, that was the feeling within the community. Um, hmm. There was a lot of discussion about. Um, this being a murder related to 
um, some money dealing. Again, this is a very small community. And so, you know, we did look into, you know, where is this discussion about money coming from? And we have learned that um, uh, Aaron Faith Murphy was involved in helping um, illegitimate businesses that were referred by uh, Sylvester Warren to Renaissance Bank. She did help them obtain loans. And even before the PPP loan, she helped them obtain loans through the bank. Um, I personally spoke with Ms. Murphy. I asked her if, if she had any knowledge, interaction with Sylvester Warren and and my initial meetings with her, she absolutely told me she didn't even know who he was. And so when I showed her the letter from 2006 that she signed and sent to a judge, she told me that she was unaware of the letter. She probably signed it as a favor for someone. Um, you know, when I read the letter to her and told her that the letter specifically identifies his interactions with her then a uh, very young son and um, acknowledged that he was a help to her in disciplining and grooming the son. She was speechless. Um, she was speechless. I asked her about the PPP loans and she told me that there was no proof that she had been involved in any PPP loans. And so when I shared with her the proof, you know, same scenario, she, um, she offered excuses, but at a certain point, you know, there was just too much evidence for her to deny that she had involvement. So it went from, she didn't know what, what was being discussed. She had no knowledge of it to, um, you know, maybe there was some, some situation, but she didn't do anything that was wrong. And so I, I, you know, encouraged her to, um, go to law enforcement and provide, she had, she shared some text messages and some videos with me. And I encouraged her to take that information over to law enforcement, but for whatever reason, Miss Murphy would not turn over that phone. And to today, she still hasn't turned over that phone. Um, and they're not pressing her about the phone, which is, you know, also ironic and consistent with how they have handled the murders that are unsolved um, since, since 2015. Hmm. So this is all a, a, a really big mess, and and throughout it all, it seems like a lot of uh, a lot of dangerous stuff have happened. If you're right, and these are all these murders are connected, then obviously these are dangerous people, and you've been threatened. Do you fear for your safety, and and what precautions are you taking? Absolutely. Um... So we, I have a six foot block fence around my property. <laughs> um, in 2021, you know, I was threatened. My children were threatened. And Sylvester Warren made these threats publicly. 
he made them publicly. He put a lot of misinformation out of there, but he was very strategic about um, inciting minorities to believe that um, I didn't have an interest in minorities. And so he provided them with my home address. Um, he and his, I call them colleagues, um, they started on a narrative that um, I was a threat to black people. And so I took my children out of school and started homeschooling them. Uh, my children used to speak at least twice a month at a uh, local meeting, be it the city, the school board, or the county. And so um, in 2021, Sylvester and he probably then had about 10 followers. They threatened me so severely that my children refused for two years to attend a public meeting. Um, they were scared to go to school. My daughter, who is um, she's just an honor student, she's just really a rock, just involved in everything, president of student government of academic um it 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 had it it had a very damaging effect to her personality she graduates this year and it's just been an ordeal it's just really been an ordeal and it's you know, know it's it's not the first you know what I have learned since 2009 uh, after returning uh, to Lake City is that this the the underbelly of criminal activity here it's it's been here for a while and it exists off of the complacency of citizens they've gotten really comfortable and it's a small town and they think everything's good. But um, things happen and they turn a blind ear to it. In the early 80s, we had a similar situation occur and it involved some judges and uh, lawyers you know, I, I often go back and read that article of the New York Times because they didn't remove all of the culprits. And because they didn't remove all of the culprits, those people and their children, they just grew up. They waited some time and they started it back. And it's like every decade we go through this cycle of um, of cleansing, but they never clean all of it out. They leave enough of it for it to... To, to, to rejuvenate in the energy and then um, start up again. And, and that's really where we are we are now. We're overdue. Um, but it's it is very trying for me and my my children. Fortunately, I only have two here, two minor children in Lake City and the two grown children, you know, they're safe. Now, they haven't always been safe because, you know, at least one of them was here in Lake City when some of these things were happening. And um, 
He suffered the fate of being kidnapped from school at the hands of people involved in this ordeal. And we got past it. Um, it's just very, very difficult to experience. Very difficult. I can tell how, you know, just by the, the tone of your voice, how uh, upset this makes you and understandably. So, you know, just keep safe, stay safe and, um, you know, watch your back. And um, and we we do have to point out, too, just for the um, legal reasons that Sylvester Warren hasn't been charged in connection to any of uh, these murders or anything like that. But um, it's clear, though, that the same names come up and the same people uh seem to be in in connected along the way here uh in in some of these cases absolutely and these are just you know sylvester has a fiance that is the town manager without any municipal experience in a town that's 12 miles from lake city and in may of 2022 that mayor and her husband um, were at home, and there is a 14-minute-long 911 call where a mentally ill man, Verna Birch, is knocking on their door begging for help. And within the last two minutes of that 14-minute 911 call, after law enforcement dispatcher tells that couple that they should be able to see law enforcement. Um, the husband exits the house and he goes around to the front door and Vernon Birch is shot in the back with the husband telling the sheriff deputy as they approach the house, when they approach the house, that Mr. Birch after 12 minutes of standing there begging for help and without you hearing any glass shattering in the 911 call was attempting to come through the window as his wife was on the 911 call and i mentioned that because there was no investigation none um and that's that's just one murder in mm. 2000 and um 13 2014 the same fiance sister who has a child from sylvester's brother was dating a quote-unquote competitor of sylvester and that man would be murdered as a um fugitive a federal fugitive at her name is Lavelle George at her house. He would be murdered and she would call Vanessa and they would wrap the man up in Christmas wrapping and they would attempt to clean the house and they would drive around for hours before calling law enforcement. And they would eventually call law enforcement and our current state assistant 
or our current state's attorney, who was then the assistant state's attorney, would come out to the scene of the crime and he himself would tell law enforcement that there was no provocation for murder. And that's his words verbatim, no provocation for murder. And yet she would attempt to use battered women's syndrome, which they denied, but then they would allow her to use stand your ground. And she would walk away from that murder that occurred while this man was asleep. And in that FBI investigation of Jeff Sigmeister, who was the state's attorney at that time, would Sylvester Warren himself say that if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, if you don't handle these criminal investigations the way I'm telling you, you will be replaced by your assistant state's attorney, John Jarrett. And coincidentally, Jeff Sigmeister would go to prison and John Durrett is now our state's attorney. Wow. And I met with him myself and questioned, why would you go to a convicted drug trafficker's residence? And he couldn't even answer me. Hmm. Anywhere else, no one thinks that's normal. But that's yeah. what he chose to do. As this huh. man is saying, he controls you. He brought you from Mississippi. You have told him that he would receive no criminal prosecution for crimes he's committed. And you go to his house. Sounds like a, a, so a real we, mess. We have a lot of. Yes. How do you think that this whole situation gets cleaned up? This whole uh, mess. What's what can be done to change the uh the outcome here i absolutely believe that there are very few situations where the federal government needs to step in and i absolutely believe lake city is in that situation uh we have a government local and county government that this man is allowed to show up at meetings and accused, threatened <laughs> without any consequences, without any consequences. Citizens are scared and rightfully so. We have a murder every two weeks. We need intervention. I, I don't know any clear picture for domestic terrorism than what we are experiencing right now, but that's what we are experiencing. The very definition of domestic terrorists is what we're experiencing in Lake City, in Columbia County. And the longer it is allowed to exist, the more damage will citizens in this community incur, but not just us surrounding, because they believe they're getting away with it. And essentially they are getting away with it. Even if an investigation comes tomorrow, good people don't all stand up. There are plenty of good people who will acquiescence to what is going on out of fear, not because they're bad people, but because they are scared for their families 
And we watch this every day. We watch good people go along with what's happening out of fear, not because they're bad people, but because they're people who want to remain alive. And I don't blame them because my children have gone from riding the bicycles up and downtown to being forced to live within the confounds of a block. Hmm. So I, I, I totally understand. I, I do understand. We need hmm. things to be cleaned up. We need proper investigation. We need accountability. We hmm. cannot have convicted felons who continue to display that behavior. We can't have them causing the type of fear that has become the umbrella in Columbia County that exists here. We, we can't have that. I mean, I don't have a small family. And to watch my brother's murder investigation be reduced to, well, B, you're the only one sitting here concerned. I'm the only one sitting here concerned because I don't have the fear that other people rightfully have. So I don't really know that it's courage more than it's stupidity. Mm. I definitely know that it's not fair to my children that they believe, could ever believe that I don't care or don't love them as much as those parents or those citizens who who choose not to subject their families to, to, to danger, to harm. I don't do it because I, 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 I don't want them to be without harm. I do it because I believe that our community as a whole is worth the quality of life, not just that I seek for my family, but that all children should receive. And it's not fair that any one or any, any small number of people be subjected to, to, to being required to have that level of sacrifice. But that is what's required of us. Really, really all around a bad situation, it sounds like. And I hope um, that you can somehow muddle through it and get some some kind of uh, justice. And, and hopefully that town gets on the right track uh, because, you know, it's your family. It's Kendrick's family. It's all these families that are still, you know, without answers, without justice. And uh, hopefully they get that justice. Get that justice. You, all get it. you all get it. Well, I appreciate people like yourself who. You don't live here. You don't even have to care, but you do. And it's your voice that amplifies what we're enduring in these communities. So I am absolutely appreciative for what you're doing. Well, thank you for being brave and, and keeping this uh, out there and, and just please be safe. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.